0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to highlight a recent conversation between Donna Clark, the Dean for admissions here at the Darden School of Business, and Vivian Reifberg. Vivian, as you'll learn through this conversation, is a member of the faculty here at Darden. She's a professor of practice in the strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship area, and she joined the Darden faculty after a decorated career at McKinsey & Company, uh, the consulting firm, and Vivian has deep experience in healthcare. Donna and Vivian talk about that experience. They talk about the work that she's doing with full-time MBA as well as executive MBA students in the classroom, but they also spend quite a bit of time talking about a recent initiative here at the Darden School of Business, the Women 2.0 Initiative. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, so without further ado, Here is a conversation between Donna Clark and Vivian Reefberg.
1: Vivian, I'm going to get started. I know that you are newer to the Darden faculty. Would love for you to share the story of how it came about that you came to Darden um, and made the leap to academia.
2: So um, I am the daughter of a school teacher. Um, She taught fourth grade, primarily 10-year-olds. And I always vowed I would never be a school teacher. (laughs) But um, I was in the latter stage of my career at McKinsey. And I was approached, actually, by the dean of the Darden School of Business, Scott Beardsley, who had spent a career at McKinsey as well. And he called, I didn't know him very well, actually, at McKinsey but he called me up one day and said he wanted to get together. And I asked, okay, but what's the headline? And he said, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? And you should think about academia. And I said, oh, the last thing I wanna do is teach. And my mother was a school teacher and he said, how old were the students? And I said, 10, and he said, Of course, you don't want to teach 10-year-olds, but you have been teaching adults your whole life as a consultant, and you really ought to think about it. That's how we got started. To make a long story short, while I was still at McKinsey, I tipped my toe in the water and dipped my toe in the water by teaching one class uh, in the executive MBA program. And I really stepped back and thought about what is it I love about my life that I have been leading that I will miss when I make a transition. And Darden had all those things. It had Mm. young people who keep you edgy and curious and it had intellectual curiosity and it had a practical orientation through the case method. And we'll get into that, I hope later, but I love the case method because it makes you make real decisions and think about, Um, reality, not just the theory or the framework. And it's been fantastic. I'm really glad I came.
1: Well, good for Scott for identifying you as a potential faculty member and good for you for being willing to dip your toe into academia. And it's worked out so well. I know you've been so well received and we hear fantastic things about you across the formats from our students. You are a faculty member in the strategy, ethics and entrepreneurship area. What attracted you to this area? And can you tell our um, participants today a little bit about what you teach?
2: Yeah. So um, um, what attracted me, if you think about the words, strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship, all all three of those things uh, were of interest to me, in part because of my prior professional work, and in part because I think in society today and in business management and in management and leadership writ large, we're struggling a bit with how to make all three of those things happen kind of simultaneously. How do we encourage entrepreneurship, but in an ethical way? Mm. How do we make sure we have clear strategies that will stand, uh, if you will, the test of some time, if not all time. Um, What I teach are right now, I'm teaching three courses um, I've been developing. One won't surprise anyone on this call, given my history, is the consulting process. I teach a course on the consulting process, but it is designed not just for people who are going to go to a consulting firm, but for people who want to know the skill set associated with that type of work. And maybe they're going to be doing it inside a corporation, inside a government agency. So that's one course. The second course I'm teaching um, that won't surprise anyone on this call is Solutions and Innovations in Healthcare. Um, it's uh, It includes global cases, not just uh, a U.S. focus, um, because r- virtually everywhere we are, uh, as societies, trying to figure out how to have greater innovation and more solutions that solve not only the clinical problems, goodness knows that we face with COVID and other diseases, but also the business management and economic problems uh, with, with healthcare. Um, and of course the quality. So that's the second course. And then the third course that I'm in the middle of right now, <laughs> so you're exper- I'm experiencing it real time is a course on leading in uncertainty and crisis. And um, uh, it's not a COVID only course. In fact, there's only one or two cases that have anything to do with a pandemic. But the bulk of the course is about everything from a bombing, a hurricane, a hack, ransomware, um, uh, uh, product withdrawal, you know, a whole set of wow. unusual circumstances.
1: Yeah, wow, what a great lineup of classes. And everyone, Vivian does teach across um, multiple formats the full time MBA program as well as the executive MBA program um, as well. Um, another question Darton has such a long standing reputation for having the best educational experience and for having the best teaching faculty. As prospective students are considering Darden, can you share some examples based on either your teaching or uh, peers of yours at Darden about how this manifests itself in the classroom?
2: So I I would pick out two or three things. Um, in, In my own, I'll pick out one thing from my own classroom and two from others. In my own classroom, I think, Uh, Being a professor of practice, I really try to bring the practical practice into my classroom. And that means bringing guests and executives into the classroom who are the protagonists in the case. So you not only talk about it, but then hear real time from the people who have had to make those choices, make those decisions, uh, do those things. So I think that's one way that you have a, a really exciting experience. You have the case, but then you also have the people. I think the other two things I would point to is um, this faculty, and, and I can say it because I'm brand, you know, I'm pretty new to it, so it's really them, not me, but they have won the award with the Princeton Review of being the best faculty for five years in a row. And how does that happen? Well, This is a faculty that um, really prides itself on collaboration and learning from each other. So the first time I arrived on the Darden campus, I was invited into people's classes to see how they taught and to exchange ideas of how to make something better. So what is great is its dynamic. It's always getting better. They're always working on new ways to do it. Um, and then the third way I would say is the embracing of technology that has occurred, you know, quite frankly, um, as a result of COVID. But unlike many other schools, Darden said, we're going to try to be as open as possible. And we're going to yeah. learn everything we can throughout this about how to make. The technology work for us not so we could stay offline but so we could enhance everything about the classroom experience so you know we we kind of have a wave of new uh thinking but it's the education driving the technology not the other way around
1: yeah, and that's such a good point. I mean, and talk about you know, a class where you're teaching crisis management to build on the point you were just making Vivian. I'm really proud that Darden was also the only top school that offered a January option for students in the middle of the beginning of the crisis. Um, so many of our international students couldn't get here in time, couldn't get their vaccinations and our visas in time to start in August. And so proud that Darden was the only school that repeated the entire curriculum And last year's first year class to accommodate people who couldn't get here. So such a great example of crisis management. And I'm sure you feel very proud to be a part of a faculty that is as well known for for the quality of teaching as as you all
2: are. Um, I I hope I live up to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I hear from the students a lot. They love your classes. We have a question from Mika in the Q&A. Mika, thanks for your question. She's curious about your journey to focus on healthcare. What was it about healthcare? that drew you to that area?
2: So um, when I I first thought I wanted to be a journalist, then I realized I don't like just observing. I like uh, being involved. But I was drawn to healthcare because it is this incredible combination of a societal need, a core societal need, combined with huge management challenges and whether and and what i liked about healthcare is in most countries around the world even countries that have a very large government run program there is usually a mixed economy if you will in healthcare there is the public sector that runs things there is private sector, there's nonprofits. And so the opportunity to have to work in kind of mixed management environments uh, were extremely interesting on a core societal need. And quite frankly, um, it's been a very long time that I've been in the healthcare field. I, I thought I'd solve some of the problems um, I'd like to think I've contributed to improvement on some, but all the rest of you on this call, we still have huge challenges in healthcare around the world, partly laid bare by COVID. And so it's an important management arena for the future. Thank
1: you so much. We have another great question from Theo, um, who says you've obviously interacted with lots of associates at McKinsey, What are your observations about what makes one associate successful over another, and how can a student who's interested in strategy consulting prepare for that
2: career? Um, uh, Well, one of the things they don't tell you, probably, is that um, you should only really be a consultant if you like to lead from behind. Many, many of us in this world love to get up in front of the group. Um, But in fact, as a consultant, you are a coach, uh, you are a shaper, you are an influencer, uh, but you are not that final decision maker or leader. And so it's very important that you get joy from leading from behind. And the difference between many of the people who make it and don't, are people who get that joy uh, from those things and make it may mean they just don't want to do it over the long term? I think the other thing is am- dealing with ambiguity. Um, it, you know, it's great when two plus two equals four, but most problems in life are filled with ambiguity, and many, many management problems are filled with ambiguity. And I think the people who become great consultants know how to think about ambiguity and are comfortable. And as far as getting ready for it, um, I have a huge bias towards the case method. I I mean, I will admit this fully that I think it is a distinguishing approach um, for all fields, um, but it is, is certainly a very distinguishing approach for uh, a career in consulting.
1: Yeah, and to your point earlier, in many cases, there is ambiguity in the cases and people have to make the best decisions they can with ambiguous information. So there's such a good tie-in to the case method with what you were saying earlier.
2: Right, and in the classroom, you actually get a whole host of different perspectives on that problem, which is also... Uh, an incredible way to think through ambiguity because someone else will think about it differently. And you get to hear that, not just the faculty member lecturing. It's 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 magical.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, we have some questions from the audience about the Women at Darden initiative. And before I take those questions, would you mind telling people a little bit about what the Women at Darden initiative is?
2: Yeah. Um, Many years ago, before I came to Darden, there was an effort called Women at Darden 1.0. And it was designed, you know, quite frankly, uh, in a period of time where the school wanted to uh, increase the number of students it had who were female. Um, And it was oriented substantially around that, kind of that objective. It was at a time when the school had many fewer women than it has today. When I arrived, um, I think the school had made some very good progress on a number of dimensions. And it was an inviting place for women, but maybe not all it aspired to be. And I had come from McKinsey and Company where, you know, my time period there was from the day I walked in when there was one woman senior partner when I joined McKinsey and no women in the office, all the way to where there was, you know, a very large and fruitful, wonderful group of colleagues. And I looked around Darden and I thought, you're kind of in that latter stage, but what's your real aspiration? And we formed a group and asked ourselves, what is our aspiration? We set our aspiration for women at Darden 2.0 is how do we become a place of serious choice, or if not the place, darn close to it, for women who are serious about management and leadership. And that means students, faculty, and staff, Mm -hmm. as well as our our alumni. How can we be a special place? And bluntly, um, we're crazy not to because... In many, many countries around the world today, ladies, and you know this more women go to college, more women graduate with honors from college, more women are doing a variety of things. And I happen to believe a management degree, a business degree, is the most versatile of the graduate programs that you can go to if you want to be a leader. And I say this as someone who's come from the healthcare world, unless you want to be the doctor, the management world is fantastic. Similarly, my father and brother were lawyers. Unless you want to be the lawyer and be a lawyer, if you want to be a leader, there's no better degree uh, in my view. So I
1: totally agree. It's so flexible. And how many, there's, I can think of so many roles, non-traditional roles where those business skills are so helpful. I know um, when I was getting my master's degree, the provost of UNC Chapel Hill said, we need people in higher ed who have traditional business skills. So people don't think of sort of non-traditional roles necessarily equating with management skills, but they're so transferable to so many career
2: paths. Uh-huh. Totally. And, you know, our effort at the the Women at Darden initiative, we were taking a a whole set of initiatives to continue to enhance uh, our capabilities and our offerings and our, um, the whole student, everything from admissions to being an alum, Mm -hmm. uh, making it a phenomenal experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's three elements, right? Entrance, experience, and engagement as alumni. We have a really good question from Elizabeth that is asking how the Women at Darden Initiative or the Darden Experience helps prepare women to lead companies or in in roles that are traditionally male-dominated.
2: Yeah. So uh, you've heard me say I really believe in the case method, um, and I'll tell you why. Um, The Darden experience is all about student-led leadership. And whether that's in the classroom in cases or in clubs or activities in shaping the school, it's a very student-led program, sort of writ large. Now, when it comes to the classroom and the cases, what is so important, I think above anything else, is finding your voice, finding your confidence because what separates the women who uh, end up as leaders, especially in male environments, and I certainly came from one historically at least, is having your voice, having what you're about and your ability to give voice to those ideas and those thoughts. And the, the Darden classroom is a safe place to develop those skills. It's also a place that will push you to develop those skills because you do have to participate in class. Uh, you do have to join with a learning team that will help you prepare for class in your first year. And it really, I think, um, gives you a very safe place to develop these skills. And everybody can learn the theory, everybody can do the analysis, but can you communicate it and be persuasive and and engage others to follow you? And I think that's why it separates things out. Really important. Really, yeah. really important.
1: I uh, yeah, I to- totally agree. And to be able to practice those skills in a safe environment with classmates that are rooting for you, um, and who you study with and are in learning teams with, make, and you,
2: who make will sense. debate you, but debate yeah. you. I have a I have a little sign in my classroom that I hang. I put in every day. Kindness matters, meaning we debate fully but we do it in a way that people can hear each other. And we push people to do it in a way that people can hear each other.
1: Yeah, Great, thank you. Um, sticking with the women at Darden, just for an, uh, one or two more questions. Uh, what are some initiatives affiliated with women at Darden that you're excited to continue make progress
2: on? Yeah, um, so a couple that stand out for me, the women themselves, identified the fact that uh, the protagonists in our cases were not um, as diverse as they should be. And this was not just women, Uh, it was uh, broader diversity and and quite frankly, women of color and making sure that that was fully addressed. So one of the things I'm really excited about and Darden's getting some uh, external recognition for Having our efforts on writing cases, bringing people to the classroom who who represent the diversity that that is out there. So, in for example, in my classes, um, I I was uh, uh, teasing the one of my students that you know you're going to have more women than men in my cases. Um, <laughs> You know, for and they couldn't believe it, but it's happening. So that's I did one area because that's kind of the day to day what you're hearing about, what you're feeling. Um, the other is um, uh, Darden uh, is really not only focused on your two-year student experience, which is very, very important, but also on lifelong learning. And what is, what is Darden going to be for you over the totality of your career, not just the two years you're with us, if you will, or if you're going to eventually do the part-time program that we're starting up now, uh, even a longer period. And so I'm very excited about the way we are connecting and go, we're going to have a big summit in the fall of uh, 22, it'll be our first time doing this, a women's summit, but connecting our current students with e- executives and our alumni and a and a virtuous longer term learning uh, experience. And, you know, Darden was, was one of the few schools that is really focused on how do we help you not just now, but 10 years from now,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is very important because, you know, your career isn't your first job.
1: Yeah. Okay, Vivian, we have a great question. This is a big question that's gonna tap into your pearls of wisdom from Daniel. Uh Okay, here we go. I love this question. Is there anything you wish you had done in your mid 20s? Any regrets or opportunities that you wish you had pursued?
2: Um, Well, there are two things. One thing I wish I had pursued and one thing that I just will uh, tell you, I wish I had known, I wish, I wish my younger self had known this. Uh, I wish I had lived outside of the United States. Mm. I, and one of the things I love about Darden is our global programs. Yeah, um, I think it's very important to have a, whatever country you are from, if you can have the opportunity to live elsewhere. Now, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of other places and I had a very global experience at McKinsey, fortunately. But I wished I had you know, spent two, three, year, four years somewhere. Uh, so that's one thing. I, uh, the second thing, though, is um, any time is a great time to have children if you want children. And don't let people tell you, oh, you should wait until X, Y, or Z. Now I didn't. Uh, and in my case, I found out that having kids uh, was not like studying for exam. I, you know, I could, couldn't just work harder and it would work. And I ended up adopting two children from St. Petersburg, Russia, when they were infants.
1: Oh, how wonderful.
2: But any time is a wonderful time to have children. If you want them, by the way, they're not for everybody. Um, and that's okay too. But it is important to not worry. You know, I think sometimes we worry that, you know, it all has to be done by a certain time or there's no good time because I'm busy focusing on my career. And and Dawn and I've talked about this a lot. Uh, we, you know... We value both, and we've been able to both have very interesting careers. Um, it's hard to do it all at once, so sometimes you have to sequence a few things.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I think it's one of the, one of the it's the best experience being a mom uh, of uh, in including a a wonderful career, couldn't agree more. Okay, lots of great questions coming in. Thank you so much for posting that. I'm gonna try to get to as many of them as I can. And Vivian, bear with me as we jump around a little bit. That's okay. They're rolling in. Um, Great question from Kunal. What do you see as some of the most pressing problems or challenges in today's global healthcare space?
2: Well, you know, look, uh, Uh, the recognition that when it comes to certain things in healthcare, we are um, completely connected this world. We We may have wars with each other. We may cut off trade with each other. We may wish we can not deal with certain things, but I think the most pressing thing is to recognize we are connected. And therefore, addressing our access to the needed minimum health care things is I think you know exceedingly important um, I think the other big one, particularly for um, developed societies is actually um, getting a handle on the economics because these have the potential to bankrupt economies if we don't. So those are two of the things um, I try to think about in my solutions and innovations course, how do we simultaneously improve quality, increase access and lower costs? Very hard to do all three things simultaneously, but this is how I think about it.
1: Yeah kind of related to what you were just speaking about. You you have served on two NIH boards and published several articles about changes in healthcare and the long-term impacts of COVID. Um, We're in such an interesting time um, where there are so much uncertainty in the world. You teach a class on leading um, in uncertainty and crisis. What a great class for our students to take. Any thoughts on this topic given the times that we live in?
2: So when you say this topic, do you mean on the healthcare and long-term impacts of COVID or the uncertainty and crisis? Because we could go down, you know, either you path. Pick,
1: we could go either path. You pick which one you would like yeah. to talk about.
2: Yeah, I would actually like to talk about the uncertainties and crisis yeah. because, you know, today it's COVID, but there are other big uncertainties and crises going on in the world. Even you know, alongside our health crises, and I think one of the most important things as a leader is, you know, you will come to please God. You'll come to Darden, um, and you will have a whole set of really fabulous faculty uh, getting you to think about how you'd handle a whole variety of circumstances. But much of it is in what I would call reasonably familiar business problems that have been, you've seen, they people have seen before. How do you market a product? How do you price a product? How do you think about financial management and your capital structure? Uh, do you understand accounting? You know, these are things, the the core curriculum, the the things that you really have to make sure you understand. But I believe there's nobody who will be in a large leadership role in the future who won't have to deal with some kind of substantial uncertainty and likely some crisis in their company. And these are unusual things. They're not the day-to-day uncertainties. They're not the day-to-day, you know, in what I call individual crises where a uh, uh, employee has a problem. They are big institutional crises. What do you do do if you wake up and your headquarters is underwater from a hurricane? What do you do if you have a product withdrawal where six million people took the drug, in this case, a drug I'm teaching about, And, you know, is it institutional threatening to the corporation? Learning how to think about those issues, I think um, given the times we live in, we are even having more frequent, more expansive, and in a world of instant communication, the ability for a manager to have a lot of time to ponder what to do, Right. is disappearing.
1: Yeah. And so, you're right. A hur- I'm so glad to hear you teach a class about a hurricane. There are some questions that I'll get to about climate change, but um, to integrate that into a crisis management class seems so relevant given the climate related, uh, you know, things
2: that we're seeing in the news. Yeah. Um, on extreme, the extreme weather events yeah. that are going on around the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We have um, a great question from Rama um, Given your expertise in healthcare. Can you share your thoughts on how to better prioritize mental health versus just physical health?
2: You know, um, it's hard sometimes to say that uh, there's something good that has come out of COVID. But I have found that there are two things in the healthcare arena that I think are good things out of COVID. Uh, One of them is our willingness to recognize that people want more services at home and, if possible, virtually. And we're being much more innovative about what we can do in those spaces. The second one is mental health. I think we have crossed the Rubicon. We're not there yet, but we are crossing the Rubicon in many countries, not every country I want to be and not every society where we are finally recognizing that this separation as if physical health is legitimate and mental health is uh, not legitimate is we're finally getting out of that mode. And I had the good fortune to speak uh, at the World Economic Forum several years ago on mental health. And one of the things I spoke about was that the more companies realize the economic cost as well as the human cost of not addressing this the same way you would address cancer By the way, many people have mental health issues when they have cancer, Um, how important this is. So I'm encouraged by um, the willingness for more people to have the conversation. We still have much more work to do, but I'm encouraged.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that you opened with talking about the, the, the silver linings of COVID, um, because I read something recently um, that it was uh, written by a psychiatrist who was saying people navigate life experiences, traumatic experience better if they can find the silver linings and those outcomes that, that come out of it. So um, speaking speaking of mental health, we have a really great question from... A participant who said, you've experienced such professional and personal success. What character traits or skills have you worked really hard at developing
2: within yourself? Yeah. So, you know, one thing I want to just tell all of you, it all looks very logical and beautiful on paper now. Okay. And you go, oh, wow. It wasn't. It wasn't that way, it just looks that way. There were a lot of twists and turns and bumps and um, confusion. I I joke that I spent my twenties in a cornucopia of confusion. So I I just say that because I don't want you to think that this was so well-planned and perfectly orchestrated and it all worked all the time, it didn't. Okay, now that we've established that. Two character traits um, and I would credit my late father uh, with one of them. Um, Treat the king like the custodian and the custodian like the king, all with dignity. Because people deserve to be well treated and respected irrespective of where they've come from, what their role is, who they are. Um, I I, I made a lot of friends that way. Mm. And sometimes people really surprise you in ways you can't understand. Um, And I think it's really an important character trait of mine. And as I said, my father. Um, the second thing is I love to, you know, wax eloquent, as you can tell, and maybe not eloquent, but I love to, I'm an extrovert, it appears. But when you take my Myers-Briggs, I think it's a, uh, I'm actually right on the line between extrovert and introvert, because I think it's a, um, uh, you know, a, a way of uh, compensating. Yeah. I'm a listener. I love to hear people's stories. I love listening. And I think those are two things that contributed uh, greatly to my success in in sort of all the different things I've done. And um, whether personally or professionally, they've been critical.
1: Oh, well, those are such great pearls of wisdom and kudos to your dad for passing on that character trait, that's wonderful. Um, We have a question from Amaria. How can men contribute to women in business at Darden or other DEI initiatives?
2: Yeah, Um, so first of all, I should tell you that we have a men as allies program here at Darden, um, where a group of men got together and as the women at Darden efforts were unfolding, they were getting involved by pursuing ways that they could be allies. And so there is, you know, sort of a, uh, it's, it's systematic in the sense that it exists. It's creative in the sense that they're still figuring out all the things they could be doing. Um, I think if, if I had to pick um, the most important thing at Darden is in the classroom, uh, having Uh, The men uh, celebrate when the women say something valuable, uh, do something interesting, um, coax someone out of their shell if they're having a little bit of a hard time speaking. I think it's in that daily interaction of not mansplaining, not talking over the woman, not taking the same idea and just saying it a different way and then taking credit. And I'm being a little obnoxious, but, you know, it is in that sort of daily life that I think is, on some level, the most important thing. Um, I think the other thing is to recognize, and this was, that this is a strategic imperative for societies and for companies. So it's, it's really important. You know, I remember going to a meeting at McKinsey where I looked at all the guys in the room and I said, you know, if you want the women to solve the problem, we will fail because there's not enough of us at the time. I mean, we just can't do it alone. Um, But if you, but you gotta believe it really matters. And we have very good evidence in the world that diverse, not just men and women, I'm talking full diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of uh, ethnicity, diversity of color. I mean, a whole range of diversity uh, that better outcomes are happening in business and in other environments with diversity and that societies that embrace women, uh, their, their economic well-being is better. Their GDP growth is higher. So. Uh, men do it because it's right. But if you can't do it because it's right, then do it because it's smart. Yeah.
1: Makes economic sense too. Yeah. Um, Going back to your expertise in your class in leading in uncertainty and crisis, there's a question from Sala who's asking what it's like to teach a case about a crisis that has occurred in the past with lots of information on how it was handled, as opposed to teaching a case about a crisis that's happening in the moment?
2: (laughs) So we do both (laughs) in the class. In fact, the final, I don't have given exam, I have a a memo. Uh, The final memo is about a crisis happening in the moment. I'm going to pick it at the end of the, you know, the week before the memo's due, I'm gonna pick a crisis that's in the news and tell the students to go figure out what to do and to tell the, you know, what, what would they tell the CEO or the board to do in this environment? Um, and we have a simulation that we also do that's in the moment. So we have some that are in the moment. The ones that are historical um, I've actually taken a bit of a strategy of, you know, asking the students, please don't read about this. Just read what you've got. Don't go read ahead. Just read what you've got. And um, we have an honor code at Darden at the University of Virginia. Uh, and students live by that honor code. They, they in fact, try to embrace being uh, in the past. The other thing is some of my cases are very old. Uh, one of my cases was uh, about something that happened in 1997. And I have the executive, he's now retired, but I have the executive in, in there. Uh, and, and not only did he tell him what happened, you know, 1997, 2001, 2008, he, he actually, we went fast forward to what's happening right now. So um, it's you know it's important to uh, even if you read ahead, then at least try to be uh, in the moment in the classroom. Is that was that a J and J case? Was it about a, a no? Wasn't about Tylenol? Tylenol is even okay. earlier than that. Okay, tylenol's yeah, I was just wondering
1: before. if Tylenol was even earlier than that. Okay,
2: yeah, th- this th- this case is about. Uh, uh, Diet drugs. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. Wow, that's great.
1: Wow, we have another question from Sakshi who says, you have led major transformation efforts with a focus in strategy development, performance improvement, and operations. What is something that you're really proud of?
2: Well, in general, I'm not really, you know, I, Uh, I don't, uh, confidentiality is very important in this this world. And I generally don't talk about um, my clients from uh, my time at McKinsey. Um, But something I can talk about, um, uh, because the firm has written about it and the people have publicly acknowledged it, was I I did work for the US Weather Service.
1: Mm.
2: And the Weather Service was going through a transformation around um, how they worked with emergency, how they worked with local government and state government uh, in the lead up to, and then during an extreme weather event. Um, and how they thought about their communications and their interactions with the public. And, it, you know, 20 years ago, you used to be told there's a 42% chance of X and the barometric pressure is Y and a whole bunch of things that unless you're a meteorologist, you had no idea what they were talking about. And the weather people sat and were separated from the emergency services of a local government or a state. They were not embedded with local government or with uh, decision makers who needed their the, the weather expertise, but were accessing it in a very awkward way. And to make a long story short, we've done we did a lot of work with the recently retired uh, head of the weather service, looking at ways that we could change the operating model for how they worked with government uh, agencies, as well as change the kind of consumer input model. uh, So that instead of saying there's a 42% and the barometric pressure, uh, when different hurricanes hit, they said, Evacuate now! You know, it don't. There wasn't a lot of uh, meteorolo- meteorological gobbledygook that people didn't understand. So mm. that's one example of work I'm I'm proud of. Sure, for good reason. Going to switch back to Darden
1: a little bit in our final moments. Um, Darden is really no- well known for its sense of community. Can you talk a little bit about how faculty contribute, contribute to that sense of community?
2: Um, two ways that, I, that stand out for me. There's 20 ways, you know, but two that stand out for me. Um, Darden does fantastic research. People write great books. They do all kinds of things. But the faculty, First and foremost, is a teaching faculty. And what's valued is whether you can teach. You have to do the other things, but there's a culture of engagement with the students, mm-hmm. teaching that comes, it's it's like a cultural thing of what pro- people prioritize. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. Uh, the, the second way is just um, our... Uh, we're physically present our offices are you know you you walk i my office in charlottesville when i'm here is across the way from my classroom it's not you know you walk across a beautiful it's gorgeous if you haven't been to charlottesville oh my god it's gorgeous and our Rosalind facilities are fantastic too i mean Mm -hmm. so uh, um the the accessibility and so you know I had lunch with two of my students today after class by the way it wasn't scheduled I went we have uh, b- facilities for food and every everybody eats there the students eat there the faculty eat there never mind all the myriad of organized engagement
1: mm-hmm.
2: of which there is a, a myriad of it um, and then finally the other one I'm having a lot of engagements it's independent studies people who have a real interest in something and want to find a faculty member who will help them uh, with their independent studies.
1: Oh, that's great. Those are some great examples of how faculty members engage with students. I had lunch with a student yesterday and it was so nice. Um, it felt so normal to be able to do that and learn yeah. so much um, yeah. from her, actually the president of GWIB, um, Graduate Women in Business. So that was, that was a, such a nice lunch. Um, and then finally, Darden is often described as a transformational experience. Can you speak to how you think um, that it's particularly transformational for women?
2: Um, I think you addressed this a little bit. Yeah, I spoke earlier about finding your voice. voice. By the way, that doesn't mean you're yelling at the top of your lungs all the time. (laughs) Um, um, I I think the other way it is, is, um, you know, I think it's really important to be in a place that is a community. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I most love about Darden, and, and I contrast it with my alma mater, is it is big enough to be interesting and fulsome mm. and complete, but it is not so big as to be a factory. Mm-hmm. And I think the community here is really special and long-lasting. Uh, In terms of I've been blown away uh, as a new faculty member by the number of alum who are willing to talk. They may not even care about the school in the sense of their big donors or anything, but they care deeply about the student experience and students and they will want to help students. And that's been uh, that's it's the it's the longevity of the transformational experience that I think is special.
1: Yeah, that's such a great point. Well, Vivian, thank you so much for thank answering you, so many Donna. Great questions and pearls of wisdom. I work really closely with Vivian and I learned so much and uh, so appreciate you, um, ah. your your time. And I think to the prospective students, I'm so Grateful for you for the time you're taking to to get a sense of the caliber of faculty members that we members we have at Darden, why we're known as being number one in teaching, um, and hope you got a lot out of this session. I know that I did.
0: And that was a conversation between Donna Clark, Dean for Admissions here at the Darden School of Business, and Professor of Practice Vivian Reifert from our ongoing Women at Darden Spotlight event series. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We could be reached at Darden. That's D-A-R-D-E-N at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.